Thank you, Pastor David. And it is a joy. It's always my privilege to come to places like this and to minister the Word of God. I, I brought my wife here this evening because I understand from the graphic that was up advertising the meeting and some people thought that was my wife on the graphic, <laughs> but it's not. Although she is from another country too. She's from Singapore. And I always tell people that she says that she married me because she said if the children turned out to be short, she could tell them I did my best <laughs> to get someone tall. But there you are. We're, we're delighted to be here and to make the journey to points past. We're going to read Esther chapter 7. It's a very short chapter. We've been kind of trying to do two chapters at once. But the next two nights, God willing, we'll just try and slow down a bit and just do one chapter so that at least you will be able to say, for those who've come every night, you've studied the book of Esther. And when you get to heaven, it'll be one book. If you meet Esther or Mordecai or any other of these Persian Jews who were believers, you'll be able to say, well, I studied the book that pertains to your life and your deliverance by God. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. It says, So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondswomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he, where is he, that durst presume in his heart to do so? And Esther said, The adversary, an enemy, is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden. And Haman stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. And Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen also before me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman have made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. And then the king said, Hang him. Thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Amen. And God will bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for these precious words recorded in Scripture for us to read to learn from, to be edified from, to be encouraged from, to be corrected from, to be instructed from. And Lord, we want to receive it all tonight that the Holy Spirit has in store for us. We want to feel God's touch through their word in all of our lives. We want to leave here better people, wiser people, godlier people more like the Lord Jesus Christ, to go out and live better and to serve you more. 
For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, as each chapter goes along, you find the suspense getting greater and greater, don't you? It's like a little soap opera in many ways. And each chapter almost ends on a cliffhanger. What's going to happen next? Where's, where's the plot going to move? And the plot is filled with danger, hesitation, courage, secrecy, as we go from chapter to chapter. And Esther is now going to have to speak and speak clearly to this plot and to this situation. And the moment of heightened danger has arrived for Esther. She's going to have to cross the Rubicon and reveal everything. She's going to have to stand in the gap for her people, for Mordecai, and for herself. And this is going to be the most challenging thing she's ever done in her life. All of the years she's lived in Persia as a young woman, she's been sheltered by Mordecai and then cosseted as the king's trophy wife in the royal palace. But this time she has to step up to the plate. And if she doesn't do it, make no mistake, God will find someone else to do it because God's plan and purpose for Israel will never be frustrated. And that's always the way. If you're not willing to do what God wants you to do, he'll find someone else to do it. You'll find that all over Scripture. It says in the book of Revelation, to hold fast that which thou hast, lest another take thy crown. Another take your honor. And if you don't do what God calls you to do in points past, he'll find someone else. If you won't serve in that ministry that God has opened up for you, he'll find someone else to serve in that ministry and you'll be the loser. Nestor, she realizes this is her moment to stand for God. And now she's going to come into the focus and behave more like Ruth to play a very important part in redemptive history in the history of the Jewish people. Haman, by contrast, is on his way down. And even at the end of the previous chapter, his family, his wife and his friends warned him, Haman, that you have begun to fall. And he's going to keep on falling until he falls into hell. Haman, who started out 24 hours before this as prime minister of Persia, the king's closest buddy, started out with 24 hours before plotting to murder the Jewish people. 24 hours before never dreamed that he would bow the knee to a Jew. And yet we're going to discover within 24 hours, he's not just going to bow the knee before one Jew, but two. And then he's going to have his head hung from the gallows he constructed to destroy Mordecai. He's going to lose everything. He's going to lose his position. He's going to lose his dignity going to lose his wealth, his family, and most of all, he's going to lose his soul in this story. And even as his friends, God in providence, and sometimes we overlook this, God puts obstacles even in the ways of sinners to warn them. And God has put obstacles in Haman's way. God could have struck Haman down the very first moment he plotted to kill the Jews, but God didn't. God gave him time. And even through the words 
of his wife and his friends, those who were near and dear to him, God was using them to speak to Haman. But like so many sinners, he refuses to listen. Yes, he's hurt by what has happened with Mordecai. Yes, he's offended by what the king made him do in honoring Mordecai. Yes, he's humiliated, but he's not humbled, is he? And he's certainly not repentant by what has gone on. And sin and pride blinds men to the danger of their situation. And you see this all around us, don't you? Every day the undertakers pass, the streets of points pass, carrying the coffins. And every year all of us tramp in and tramp out of churches and mission halls, following after caskets. And each time is a warning, you could be next. Life is fragile. Life is finite. Don't trust in your own physical strength. Don't trust in your riches. Don't trust in your position. But very quickly we forget the warnings, don't we? Shake them off like we're shaking the raindrops off our coat. Just shake off the conviction. And even believers can be like that. Lot, if you remember, got himself in a mess down in Sodom and Gomorrah and found himself kidnapped. He lost his position and he lost his home and he lost his family and he lost his freedom. And it looked like he may even lose his life. And Uncle Abraham came after him with his servants and rescued him. And then when Abraham was offered all the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah, two of the wealthiest places on the earth at that time, and probably Abraham would have gone from what we call a millionaire to a billionaire. It was offered to him. You're entitled to, you, you, you're entitled to all the spoils of war, Abraham. Abraham looked the king of Sodom in the eye and he says, I won't touch a shoe latchet. Lest anyone should say Abraham became wealthy by the wealth of Sodom. My testimony is too important, he says. That one who I belong to and my relationship with him and my, the, the reputation and testimony I have in Canaan is worth more than all the wealth of Sodom. I won't touch a penny of it. Lot saw all that. Lot lived through all of that. Lot witnessed all of that. But what did he do? He turned around and he headed back to Sodom. As fast as he could go. Didn't learn from it. Didn't grow up from it. Now Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes, in that famous chapter 3, that there's a time to remain silent. And wisdom is knowing when to keep silent. But there's also a time not to remain silent. There's a time to speak. And here in Esther chapter 7 has come the moment for Esther to speak. And we have to give her great credit because she wisely discerned and I believe all these days of fasting and I believe prayer associated with it God was leading this young woman God was directing her thoughts and her actions and her very words because she knew when to keep quiet and now she knows it's the time now to speak And she's, we're told in chapter 7, the king said in verse 2 to her, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? Three times he promises her. It shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Now, 
one of the reasons I believe she delayed, and I mentioned a number of reasons yesterday, but one of the reasons, maybe I didn't mention it yesterday, that she delayed, was because it allowed the king to keep offering her this commitment, this promise. And the more he offers it, the more difficult it's going to be for him to withdraw his offer. Because he's repeating it, and repeating it, and repeating it. And you know, Esther has learned to be sensitive, I believe, to God's leading in this matter, to wait. Samus says, be still and know that thou art God. Be still, be careful. You don't have to be rash. Rashness in action, rashness in words is not a spiritual virtue. Impatience with the leading of God is not a spiritual virtue. And Esther seems to have learned this. Now, doubtless she has rehearsed her speech many times. Because if you look at the words in verse 3 and verse 4 that Esther now uses, and read them carefully, you'll see this is a very wise young woman. Because she doesn't, sometimes when you look at scripture, it's always important to see what the person does say, but also what they don't say. Well, that's very important. And you notice as you read these words that Esther doesn't reveal everything. She's dealing with cunning, ungodly, ruthless, deceitful men of the very highest satanic order. Especially this guy Haman. He's he's like someone who crawled out of hell. And she knows that he's the type of character that you don't say anything unless you're ready to say it. But when you do say it, you be very careful what you reveal. When you're dealing with the devil, make sure you're walking very prudently. Satan is no average enemy. If you link, read Genesis chapter 3, you'll discover that he managed to trap Eve in the Garden of Eden, and think about this very carefully. She had a perfect marriage. She had a perfect relationship with God. She was in a perfect environment. She had never known sin. She had never known a sinner. She had no contemporaries who were sinners. God had done nothing but good to her. And yet, within just a few sentences... A few verses. He managed to persuade her to sin. Now that's impressive, isn't it? Don't underestimate underestimate the devil. And his skill at temptation and deception is so great that he's managed to snare throughout world history, biblical history, some of the greatest and godliest men and women who've ever walked this earth. That's very impressive. Don't underestimate him. And certainly don't underestimate his choicest disciples, like this guy Haman. Nestor very wisely doesn't. Uh, notice she doesn't reveal her Jewish identity in these verses. She's very careful. He didn't do it, you know, when he was talking to the king. And getting the king to sign off on the law to murder all the Jews. He never mentioned once that his target was the Jewish people And she very cleverly doesn't do that either. You'll notice also something very wise in what she does. She doesn't mention the king's part in this plot. Oh, she's very wise. She knows a proud, volatile man like Ahasuerus has to be handled. He's not a believer. You've got to handle people like that very carefully. And she's very wise in what she does. You notice something else about her approach. She's very indirect in how she approaches the situation. She doesn't reveal 
the plot until the last second and she doesn't reveal who the individual who's behind the plot until it's the very last of the last seconds in this conversation. Oh, she's very, very wise. Very, very careful. As I was reading it, I couldn't help but think. And I have this suspicion that during those three days, Esther may have been thinking about this incident. Because in the Bible, and Esther was before Esther's time, there's a story of how a king was approached about his sin. Because we read in the story of King David of how Nathan the prophet exposed the sin of David. And he didn't march into David's presence and say to David, you're the sinner. This is your sin. No, how did Nathan approach David? Indirectly. He came and he told David this story about the rich man and the poor man and how the rich man had all these sheep and the poor man had one little lamb whom he loved and knowing that David was a shepherd he got David into the story and David's heart moved for the vulnerability of that little lamb and the greed of the rich man and the ruthlessness of the rich man and David was so drawn into the story he didn't see himself in the story. And just as David had pronounced, the man that did it, he shall die. Nathan says, it's you. It's you. And I wonder, did Esther think of that during those three or four days of fasting? Maybe she learned from that. That the way to approach the king, maybe she said, Lord, give me the wisdom to approach this king, a more ungodly king than King David, with the wisdom of Nathan. And maybe God revealed to her, this is the way you handle the situation. Because it seems there's wisdom beyond her years in how she approaches this volatile situation where she has to deal with Satan's choicest disciple, Haman, and this ungodly, ruthless, proud Ahasuerus. And oh, how magnificent she is. And how wise she is. This young girl, remember she's a young woman. Inexperienced, but yet she shows great wisdom and great experience in this situation. But then, no doubt her heart is trembling. But she has to handle this so carefully. And she makes it sound as if it's the king's interest. It says, for we are sold, I and my petition. Well, let me go back a little further first. Verse 3, she says, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king. Now, the king has said three times, you found favor. Three times, I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. And if it please the king, she's not presumptuous. She knows this man's a chauvinist pig. So she has to handle him really carefully. But she just keeps reminding, you're the one, if you find favor, you, you've mentioned my petition, my request, and she's respectful to this man. She's not arrogant to this man. And she approaches him so carefully, so wisely, so respectfully. She doesn't come in and say, well, here's my request, bang. No. She strokes the ego of this giant ego. And she puts her herself in the place of his servant. Knowing that humility never fails. True humility. And she says, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. She says, what I'm asking you for is so serious. Ahasuerus, my life. Now she knows that by emphasizing the loss of her life, 
That's going to draw Ahasuerus in because after all, she's the queen. He said, you're Queen Esther. And who's the king? Him. Who's the one that is supposed to guard her life and protect her life? Him. And she's very wise to pull that lever, press that button. Knowing that his pride will be affected, that he could lose face if something happens to his wife because these Persian monarchs, like all monarchs, are very particular to protect the royal family, aren't they? And you'll notice as you read this, she doesn't emphasize the morality of taking the lives of others because this guy, he's not interested in morality. This guy, Ahasuerus, She's focusing on his loss of face, his loss of pride. If something goes on behind his back and takes away his wife before this nation. And she says, we are sold, I and my people. Now, this is the first time she's identifying with her people. Now, she doesn't name them, but she's crossed the line now. There's no going back. If you remember, Mordecai had told her, don't tell the king. In fact, don't tell anybody. In order to enter this competition to become Miss Persia, who your people are, what your background is, keep quiet, hide it. And now she's revealing it. And revealing it not just in public, she's revealing it to the king himself. Well, God has a way of making us do what we don't want to do. Of revealing what we try to hide. And then she subtly brings to her the king's attention. She says, I, if we had just been sold for slaves, bondmen, bondwomen, I had held my tongue. But he says, although the enemy could not countervail or undermine the king's damage, so she points out to Ahasuerus, if you lose this people, now she hasn't identified the people yet. It's going to cost you financially, Ahasuerus. You're going to lose something from your empire. And she knows that that's another lever that Ahasuerus is guided by in his life money, finance, his wallet. So she's pressing the button of his pride, failing to protect his wife from murder, and also financial loss. Losing these people will hurt you. And of course, that's absolutely true because losing the Jewish people from your nation would be a, invoking God's curse upon your nation because he says, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Nestor's right to flag this up to Ahasuerus that this would cost him. And you know, her strategy works perfectly. Because in verse 5, it says, Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he? Didn't even know who it was. No idea. And Haman had no idea. Who is he? Who is he that wants to kill my wife? Tell me, Esther. Who is he and where is he? And notice the language that durst presuming is hard to do. So who would dare plot against the wife of the king of Persia? The king of this great empire, the greatest empire the world had ever seen to this moment in time. And Ahasuerus, you almost can see him rise up in anger and pride. Who is he? Oh, Esther has really handled this magnificently, wisely, carefully, prudently. And Ahasuerus still doesn't connect the dots. And neither does Haman. 
Now, if Ahasuerus was surprised by her request, he's going to be even more surprised when she reveals the identity of this person. Because in verse 6, she says, The adversary and enemy is this. And then she adds the adjective, wicked Haman. Well, you could almost see Haman collapsing in the seat, can't you? And Ahasuerus is collapsing in his seat. Now, she could have said, it's you and you, Ahasuerus, you, you too are guilty of this. But she's very wise. She just puts the focus on him. And gives this proud, ungodly monarch the opportunity to use Haman as the scapegoat. You're not to blame for this attempt to murder myself and my people, this plot, when Ahasuerus was as equally guilty in many ways. But she gives him face, her husband, and her king by saying, it's all him. He's the wicked one, not you. And he's the one who's got you into this problem. Not you. As I said, if you read this so carefully, you can't help but admire this young woman. Sure you can't. What tact and wisdom she shows in this situation. And no doubt she was tempted to blame Ahasuerus for his rashness and his lack of consistency. Maybe drink was involved when he made that decision with Haman to wipe out the Jewish people, but she doesn't. Remember what I said? Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to speak and a time not to speak. And there's things you need to say and there's things you don't always need to say. And wisdom and spiritual maturity is learning when to bite your tongue and not to speak. Mr. Spurgeon always used to say to his students, every pastor needs to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. What do you mean by that? He meant there's things that you're better off just ignoring. Learning to ignore because they're not important in the scheme of things. And Spurgeon was no compromiser of those who know the history of his life and the downgrade controversy know that this man was unafraid and unashamed to speak up when he needed to speak up. But he was wise enough to know that there's certain things you just let go. You leave. They're not important. And all Christians need to learn that. You need to learn it not just in the church on a Sunday, but you need to learn it in the workplace on a Monday morning. You need to learn it in the school, in the university, in the home, in the neighborhood. Don't get sucked into things you don't need to get sucked in. Don't get into rows you don't need to get involved with. I see people on social media arguing Christians about things. Saw one church near us falling out there recently over whether the Christmas tree should be in the church hall for the Christmas party, for the children's Christmas party. That's what they're arguing about. Can you believe it? Now, if you don't like it, just close your eyes and walk on. It's only an old tree. But really, with Sodom and Gomorrah marching our streets and sin abounding on every hand, Christians are arguing about that. Time to speak and a time to shut up. It's really what Solomon's saying. We must learn those things. All of us must learn those things. And Ahasuerus, he's fuming. And Haman being a cunning old fox, Reads the signs perfectly. Because he knows he's in deep danger. He knows Esther has cornered him here. 
and there's really no way out. Because it says he was afraid. In fact, the Hebrew words are very graphic there. It's terrified. And the sad for Haman is he's terrified for his physical well-being. Like many ungodly people. They're afraid to die. Afraid of sickness. Afraid of funerals. But they're not afraid for what comes after death. He's not afraid for his soul's danger. Just his body's danger. And Haman doesn't even take this opportunity to repent. After all he's seen and heard. He's still not interested in repenting. All he wants to do is save his miserable life for another few years on earth. The king's boiling with anger and we're told he rose up from the banquet of wine in his wrath. Storms out to think about what has happened. And you have to give this man credit. This is the first time he's thinking. Previously, he's just, oh, you want to do it? Well, let's do this. You want to get rid of Vashti? Okay, here's the royal seal. Just get rid of her. You want to kill all these people that are offending you and annoying you, Haman? Here's the ring. Go and do it. But now old Ahasuerus has been fooled twice by acting rashly. And this time he's going to think. He goes out to the garden and one of the amazing acts of providence is Haman doesn't follow him. Because maybe Haman might have persuaded him through deception and lies that it was a mistake. And before they went back in to see Esther, maybe Haman would have done a deal. But he doesn't do that. Because he's in a tizzy as well. He's caught in the web of his own deception. And he doesn't, he's not able to think straight. In fact, we're told, instead of following the king out, he fell upon the bed where Esther was. He stays where he shouldn't be, alone with the queen, in a private room. And when the king comes in, don't miss what it says here. It says the king returned at the palace into the banquet of wine and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. Coincidence? Bit of bad luck that just happened that way. He just happened to fall on the bed just at the moment the king came in through the gate or from the garden in his anger, not knowing what to do or contemplating what to do. No. Fingerprints of God. Working through the whole thing. And the king's matter is solved. His sentence is more or less made out for him because he now just turns around and he says, Will he force, and the idea of that is, will he sexually attack or rape this queen? Will he, will he take advantage of the queen? And no doubt, Haman fancied himself as a playboy. And here's the king, already angry with him, and he sees him like this, and he says, will he do this, humiliate me again? Now, Haman hadn't touched her. But this is a very convenient excuse for Haman to be ordered to be put to death without trial. And immediately, we're told, as soon as the words went out of his mouth, they covered Haman's face. His servants, his bodyguards knew that's the death sentence. There'll be no court of appeal in Persia. There'll be no QC or KC hired to help Haman. There'll be no more excuses allowed from Haman's cunning mind to cover up what he has done. That's it. Now, if you've been looking for the fingerprints of God in this, you'll see another giant fingerprint in verse 9. Because it says, And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, 
said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman hath made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. God had planted a chamberlain in the right place at the right time with the right information to speak at that exact moment. Coincidence? Bit of good luck? Bad luck for Haman? No. If you've been studying this book of Esther, you'll see the hand of God at work. The fingerprints of God. And even the words that he used. He says, Haman hath made for Mordecai who has spoken good for the king. He, he couldn't have made it sound any worse for Haman. Sure he couldn't. Not only is he someone who tried to kill the queen, your majesty. And as your majesty has witnessed, tried to abuse the queen before your majesty's eyes. But he's also trying to kill one of the king's choicest servants. Mordecai. Oh. I was going to say you almost feel sorry for him and it can't get any worse. Well, you don't feel sorry for him, for he deserves everything he gets. God's fingerprints are all over this incident. And the king said, hang him thereon. without hesitation take him out and ultimately Haman now verse 10 is going to reap directly what he sowed he's going to fall into the pit to use the metaphor that he dug for someone else Matthew Henry put it this way I love to quote sometimes Matthew Henry or he has some great observations. He says, Haman was justly hanged on the very gallows he had unjustly prepared for Mordecai. Oh, what a statement. Justly hanged on the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And all his wealth and his power and his privilege couldn't save him. What a lesson that is for all of us. If you turn to Psalm 49. Psalm 49. It's a wonderful psalm. And it says in verse 16. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. Why? You know, the world that we live in, oh, they're very impressed with riches, aren't they? They're very impressed with the powerful. And they bow and they scrape and they envy. And even the child of God can get sucked into thinking like that. God says in the word of God, don't, don't, don't be impressed by their material possessions. Don't be impressed by the seemingly powerful position they hold and the aura that surrounds them. And that's true not just of the politicians, but of the big business tycoons, the social media giants, what a name. Pygmies, as you call them. Or are these sports stars? Or are these powerful managers of elite clubs whose very word can make or break someone's career? 
The Bible says, don't, don't get too impressed by these things. Why? Look at verse 17. For when he dieth, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't last the riches. They all have to be left behind. And the powerful position and the aura that surrounds that person, it'll one day disappear. In fact, it very quickly will disappear. And the Bible says, for when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. Nothing away. These great managers. I always remember Bobby Robson was the manager of England. And then he was the manager of Newcastle. They made documentaries about him. And what a, what a man of power he was. And how he could control and influence people's lives. And Alec Ferguson and people like this. And I remember watching Bobby Robson come in the wheelchair. Just a broken old man. Frail. Couldn't even walk. They brought him out and they all gave him a big clap. Then they took him out and went on with the game. And a day or two later he was dead. In a box. Alec Ferguson was famous, isn't he? And is famous for his hair dryer treatment. And how he could intimidate even the most mature professional in his team. And yet he just was struck down with a brain hemorrhage or he was in a coma. And I remember listening to the interview of him after he had come through the surgery. And he said this. He said, all I could sense was the darkness. And I knew I was dying. And he said, I was afraid to die. I was afraid to die. Didn't want to. Not so powerful then. You see him now, he doesn't look so great, sure he doesn't. Not so intimidating anymore, and very soon he'll be like Bobby Robson, just carried out in the box too. Oh, the great and the good and the powerful. Remember Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi? Oh, how they strutted the world stage and threatened and intimidated. And then you see their last moments running like a fox, hunted by the mobs, torn apart. Oh, not so strong now. And the Bible says, don't get too impressed with these people. In fact, in verse 12 of Psalm 49, it says, notice these words, Nevertheless, man being honor abideth not, never lasts. The things of this world, the popularity of this world, the fame of this world. It never lasts. I often say to our young people, when I was in Singapore, who knows who was the richest man in Singapore a hundred years ago? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Because they're dead, gone, forgotten about. And all their wealth and their popularity and their prestige has come and gone. Gone. See him for the Northern Ireland. Who was the most powerful man in points past 100 years ago? Who was the wealthiest man in points past 100 years ago? Who had the best academic results in points past 100 years ago? It doesn't matter. Nobody knows because nobody cares. They came, they went, gone. Man being in honor abideth not. Don't build your life on the acclaim and popularity of the ungodly. And the things of this world, they don't last. Don't last. And Haman's as good an illustration of that as anybody. And he reaped exactly what he sowed. Can you see that all over the Bible? Even among God's people. Jacob lied and deceived his father with the goat skins and the blood, didn't he? To get the birthright. 
And many, many years later, Jacob's sons did the exact same to him. Took the coat of many colors and the blood of a kid. And he reaped exactly what he sowed. And it cost him far more in terms of agony and pain and humiliation. Oh, you see it. David, when Nathan said to him that day, Thou art the man. What did David say? Before he said that, David says, The man who did this shall pay back fourfold. And he loses life. That wasn't even a capital offense. Stealing the lamb. But David says he loses life and he'll pay back fourfold. And David lost four sons. Absalom, Amnon, Adonijah, and the illegitimate child he conceived with Bathsheba. All four, lost all four. At the end of his life, he said these words, Although my family and my home be not so with the Lord. What cost him? He reaped what he sowed and he sowed all that sin into his family and it reaped a bitter harvest for David. Notice the progression and with this we finish. Notice the progression in Haman's life in 24 hours. And I'll use a little bit of alliteration. All the preachers like to use this to show off. Number one, he was honored. Number two, he was humiliated. Number three, he was horrified. And number four, he was hanged. All within 24 hours. What a difference 24 hours can make when the finger of God's involved. When the hand of God's involved in people's life. You know, many look at this story of Esther and they see it as simply a story to entertain children. But it's a story that's pregnant with instruction. To you and me. Of how God works. Not just in the world at large. But in our lives. In our circumstances. And all the threads of history. God is weaving them together. Throughout all the lives of history. To construct his beautiful pattern. All the pieces of the jigsaw. Ultimately make a beautiful picture. But it's God's picture and it's God's jigsaw. And that's what's hard for us because we want to see the final picture. But we're only given the piece of the jigsaw. Then another piece. And God says, you just leave it with me. I know what I'm doing. Just be patient. And we don't like to wait. We don't like to be patient. We like to know everything now. And immaturity is always exemplified by impatience. Isn't that right? We, we, when we get in our cars and go on the journey with our children, they all say what? Are we there yet? And we sort of smile and think, yeah. that's children. That's immaturity. And spiritual immaturity is the same when we say to God, can you show me now? Can you let me know now? The wise man and the wise woman knows to say, I, I can't see the full picture, but God can. And it's his jigsaw. And it's his pattern he's weaving. And you know, as you read the story of Esther, you always need to tell yourself, and warn yourself, don't ever make snap judgments about God. Don't ever look at a situation and say, it's hopeless. Because if ever there looked a hopeless situation, by Esther chapter 3, it looked hopeless, didn't it? It looked hopeless for Mordecai. And it certainly looked hopeless for the Jewish people. And humanly speaking, it didn't look as if anybody could save them. And if you took a look on the horizontal, there was no hope. But in looking only at the horizontal, you would have missed looking upwards and seeing God's at work.
God knows what he's doing. And God's going to intervene in his time, in his way. God can move in situations through unlikely people. I mean, Ahasuerus is the most unlikely person for God to use, but God's going to use him as a means of punishing Haman, as a means of chastising Mordecai and Esther and the backslidden Jews in Persia, but also as the instrument to deliver the Jews in the end. See what God can do. It's amazing. If you step back and just say, hmm, keep quiet and watch God work. And you'll see that in your life. You'll see that in the church life. You see that in our nation's life. You'll see that in this story. Don't ever despair because you see the little Haman strutting around. Don't ever be intimidated when you see the little Haman's plotting and planning and boasting because they're here today. And they'll be gone tomorrow. And the Jewish people, as one old commentator said, have stood at the grave of all their enemies. Hitler, when he came to power, boasted publicly the Third Reich will last a thousand years. Maybe he thought he was, he was a premillennialist. Thought he was the Messiah. The Third Reich didn't even last 10 years. And it collapsed. And the man who boasted it would last a thousand years shot himself like a coward in the head rather than face his humiliation publicly. And you know, Hitler's hatred of the Jews and persecution of the Jews had a most unlikely endpoint because because of the effects of the holocaust 3 years after the end of the second world war it moved the emotions of the ungodly world leaders to vote for the establishment of the state of Israel oh how it backfired Providence worked. At the, a moment you could say is one of the worst moments in the history of the Jewish people. God not only preserved them through their pain, but he opened the door to something they've been waiting 2,000 years for. The reestablishment of their state in their ancient homeland. And you know when their country was floundering economically, in the late 50s and 60s. One nation stepped up. And paid them. Listen to this. Close to 300 billion euros. Of reparations. That enabled their country to have its economy stabilized. And become today one of the wealthiest, most advanced nations on the planet. Which country paid them the 300 billion euros? Deutschland. The one that tried to destroy them. See what God can do? Working in the shadows. When you step back and let him, God can still be trusted. God is still on the throne. Do you believe it? You better believe it. Because it's true whether you believe it or not. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this evening. For the instruction to us. And we confess many times we doubt. Many times we become impatient. Many times we think we need to help God out. In a situation. Many times we're like the psalmist and say. Where art thou Lord? Many times we're prone to despair. 
and doubt and depression, when we see the world around us, we see our circumstances, we see the advancement of the wicked and their boasting. But your word says the end is not written in 24 hours. I write the end of the story. And I do it in my time. And in my way. And Haman looks so powerful that day. Strutting around Persia. Prime minister. Seemingly unassailable. And yet 24 hours later he went from being honored. To being humiliated. To being horrified. To being hung. Only God can turn things around like that. And your word tells us that the world that we live in will be destroyed, its whole economic system, not in 24 hours. But Revelation says in one hour, God will destroy Babylon and all its wealth and its power. Lord, give us the faith to march on with confidence, not in self, but in the God who was with Esther and Mordecai and your ancient people, is the same God who's with them today, but he's also with us today. Emmanuel, God with us. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.